0: yes welcome back to brave new earth thank you so much for tuning in back with another online edition which i'm very excited for we've got josh Nauer from reseed how's it going yeah real pleasure to have you on man i'm digging into your company really really fascinated about what you do both from an ethical and climate impact so i'm really excited to kind of yeah share the story of reseed with with the audience so do you want to just give a quick one, two-minute overview of how how you pitch this to my grandma.
1: <laughs> so we are working to enlist billions of people across the planet who have a direct ability to help fight climate change. And we want to see climate change solutions happening at scale. We want to see those efforts being equitable and financing and helping uh, people around the world who are suffering some of the worst ravages of poverty. And those are the folks that also, they're smallholder farmers and they're people who actually feed a vast majority of the planet. And so by doing this work, we not only help fight climate change and help reverse poverty, but also help secure the food system that we all need to survive. So we're excited about doing that. We provide financial incentives to farmers and provide them with a pathway basically for turning their farms, the existing work that they're doing on that, those farms, to create things called carbon credits and to be able to bring those to market and sell them. And that work is new, it's unique
0: in the world, and we're excited to be letting the world know about it. Yeah, it's an awesome company. So, correct me if I'm wrong, you're basically the infrastructure that enables uh, smaller farmers to sell carbon credits because the work they're doing is, yeah, I guess sequestering a lot of carbon, but for 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 the small farmer... They just wouldn't know how to do it really would they and particularly i mean in the us the uk maybe they would but you, you guys are really working globally and, and trying to hit trying to help communities and maybe developing countries so uh...
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean,
0: I think the the thing that we focus
1: on is the fact that our farmers are our business partners, right? So yeah.
0: they already are
1: doing the work of land stewardship. They are on the front lines of literally they're the barrier between us and losing most of the forests in the world. 80% of all deforestation right now takes place as a result of industrial agriculture overtaking smallholder farmers and pushing them off their land. And so if we can help stabilize those farmers on their land, we help protect the generations, centuries, sometimes millennia of work that has happened in those communities to protect and create a viable ecosystem on the ground that they are working in. And then also we work with them to help uh, as as they start getting that financing from the previous work that they've done on the, uh, their land. We're able to help provide advice and some technical support and financing to help them create and draw down even more carbon from their activities. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's so interesting. Basically, you're creating a completely new revenue stream for small whole farmers. And I know some of the reaction, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can imagine some people say to this, well, you're not sequestering any new carbon, so why, why are we focusing on that? However, I knew this because there's always the annoying people in the climate movement that try and find always. problems and solutions. <laughs> yes. Really, what you're doing is you're keeping so many people, so many smallhold farmers in business, because they're being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, they go out of business, big corporate comes in, takes it over. Not only are they ruining their generational land, but then the company comes in and does unregenerative or just bad farming practices. And then we lose all the environmental impact that we have, a social impact of having these small smallhold farmers on the ground doing this work. That's, that's correct. That's where we start, right? That is, we
1: actually, we created a new carbon standard and a protocol that is built on some of the best science of what the legacy carbon markets have tried to do over the past 40 years. But what we have done is basically where, you know, less than 1% of all carbon credits on the market today come from agriculture at all, and almost none come from smallholder agriculture, right? So this is, we're talking about 2 billion farmers globally yeah. that are managing teratons of of carbon on their land and we have the ability and, and in some of the most vitally important biodiverse areas that sequester large amounts of carbon in carbon sorry in soil and plants and so we just start as a baseline measuring just what is the baseline of carbon that they currently have and yeah. we make sure we create carbon credits from those and identify them very clearly and then we measure the increase every year that happens in that carbon when you manage for it, right? And managing yeah. for carbon, carbon smart agriculture as the industry likes to call it, is really just regenerative or traditional farming practices that help to draw down even more carbon. So we do actually measure removals of carbon as well, and that is a product that we sell as, as a separate yeah. type of credit. And basically, those farmers are able to monetize both activities that need to happen you need to draw down new carbon and you need a place to store it and to keep yeah. it in the ground and to make sure that you're not losing and causing emissions to go out into the world and that is the process that we help stabilize and cre- and grow yeah. and and when you're engaging with that many farmers across 600 million farms you know and as i mentioned 2 billion people doing it you have the ability to create a mass global movement and engage with these farmers that have been just ignored, quite frankly, yeah. by and left out by the current and legacy carbon markets.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. They're just not big enough to for the bigger markets to to care, right? So that they've been left out.
1: Individually they are. But together, when you start when you have more rational technology behind how you collect the data and how you actually measure you can aggregate that data together and actually create some of the largest pools of carbon and carbon credits in the market that can be traced all the way back to the field or
0: forest that they came from which is something that you can't do with with the legacy carbon markets yeah i think that's phenomenal really really cool technology so let's let's dive in a bit so there's 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 A few elements to your technology and your few business that I find really interesting. Uh You touched on two of them there. So let's dive into those two first. One, you help these farmers, smaller farmers, track how much carbon they are sequestering. Yes. How does that work?
1: So basically, we've created a new methodology that's once again built on the science and and methods that have been used in the past. Uh And we've improved on them using modern emerging technology that has proven itself at this point. So basically it starts with identifying the farmers themselves use an app on the ground that, yeah. uh, that they identify the vegetation, the types of plant species that exist on the ground. So where their crops are basically. And we look at their entire property. So we look at where wild vegetation is as well. We look yeah. at soil amendments and we ask them to let us know what do they do with their soil right now and what are the, some of their other practices. And most importantly, Beyond just the carbon part, we also track and we keep an ongoing record of not just the carbon, but also some of the socioeconomic impacts. So, where have they started? What's their baseline as a family? You know, I can tell you that almost 9,000 farmers that we work with now, a tiny percentage have access to any financial services. 60% do not have access to clean drinking water. You know, 80 to 90% are living at or below the poverty level in the country in which they live. So these are all this is all data that we track and as that data is collected from the ground, we're able to verify all of that data and especially the carbon data. We pull it into the cloud. We have an AI system actually that goes through huh? and pulls in data from satellites and from other government agencies and and all kinds of other sources that help us to verify the information that the farmers have given us. And we end up with uh, a calculation through a whole bunch of a very advanced uh, science, but we get a calculation that tells us per 10 meter square, how much, how many tons of carbon are present and that in the soil and in the vegetation. And basically we are able then to take that data, turn each metric ton of carbon that, that has been stored or protected or measured in the past year, and we turn that into a carbon credit. And that is fundamentally different than the way that most carbon credits that are on the market today work, which is they are based on futures. They're based on uh-huh. what might happen in the future that maybe there will be a change in carbon that happens, you know, in, and measured in the future. It's incredibly obtuse. It's incredibly challenging to follow, and very, very expensive for anybody to get access to sort of the science and the modeling and the data and all the rest that needs to happen. So we. Went about this by saying that system isn't working. It's not scaling. It's excluding billions of people who could be participating in this market. And so we came up with a performance-based carbon model that is backwards-looking. It looks at what just happened in the past year that we've actually measured, and that we can have real near real-time information flowing from those farms and getting that data, you know, from satellites and from all sorts of different places. That allows us to come up with highly, highly accurate measurements of the carbon that's present.
0: That's really, really cool. And Thank incredibly you. complicated to do all... Your technology must be phenomenally advanced. I mean, you say you're using AI and stuff to you, to put in all this data and, and, yep. and punch out a result, which is which is amazing. So if I'm a smallhold farmer, say yes. in, I, I don't know, so I know you work a lot in... Tanzania or Brazil, yeah. any 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 number of different places that we work. So if I if I'm yeah, if I'm a farmer, how do I sign up and I guess start yep. engaging and, and earning money? So we work through into
1: not usually nonprofit, but sometimes cooperative NGOs yeah. that, that work or farmer co-ops. And basically We always have a partner that's on the ground that has direct community relationships in place already with, you know, on a scale of thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of farmers. We work with organizations that are both small and large. So everybody from Heifer International, which has, you know, 45 million smallholder farmers around the world to very localized organizations that work within specific regions or co-ops of farmers that work in specific areas. So we usually almost always work through those intermediaries and that's how the farmers get engaged and brought into the process. And yeah. basically at that point, those intermediaries are able to provide the technical support that's needed for farmers. So we sometimes provide the the phones or the tablets that are needed for on the ground data collection, if that's something that's a challenge in the region. They provide the ability to walk farmers through how to collect the data, which ah. interestingly enough, the majority of our farmers actually have their kids go collect the data, right? It's that simple. <laughs> it's easy to do. Yeah. And the kids love yeah. interacting with the technology. It's it's a very positive experience Life. in yeah. the communities in which we work. And then basically those same organizations provide the consulting work and sort of the advisory work to help those farmers. Once they realize the value of this new crop that they have, that is not about yeah. extracting something from their own land, but actually creating it to the land that once they see the value of, and rec- start receiving their first payments for the carbon, they usually take a percentage of that, the The farmers decide to take Man. a percentage of that, just like they do in their normal crop work that they do, and invest it back into the land so they can get more of it, right? Yeah. That is the financial incentive that we're going for. That is what leads to increased carbon removal from the atmosphere, which is a really important function that we need to see happen. And basically it, that model, provides it, it works within the construct that most farmers have right they think about how can they have their land be most productive given the you know inputs that they're able to put into that land we're helping to increase those inputs and that also helps increase the outputs not just in carbon but when you do carbon friendly carbon smart farming basically that helps to and we find this with our farmers increase the yields of their other crops that they have on that land And that means they have better product, more of it, and they're earning more money from the crops themselves, and then additional stream of revenue from carbon on top of it. It's the future that we need to see. It's providing those aligned economic incentives so that, you know, the concepts of sustainability or regenerative agriculture can actually happen at scale, as opposed to just piecemeal efforts that we've seen up until this point.
0: That's fascinating. So that, that's these regenerative practices, bringing more carbon into the soil improves the soil health Yes, and then the soil health in turn increases the yield. So it's like a positive feedback loop of yes, amazing. That's so interesting. I think, I mean, I, I really want to dive into the carbon credit market, so I'll pocket that, but this sure. is so interesting to start off with because can you paint a picture for me of what agriculture is like today and why it's unsustainable And then secondly, what is regenerative agriculture and what should the future look like from that angle? Yep. So if we look at our
1: food systems in general, the vast majority of destructive, unsustainable behavior that's taking place right now is in monoculture industrial level scale agriculture. Soybean production and palm oil production are the two biggest culprits, and there's there's others that are out there that are challenging. And basically when you look at the equatorial regions of the world where the most carbon is stored, where we need to stop the deforestation that's taking place in traditional cultures and in in traditional farming communities, you find healthy forests and products are being generated from those forests like nuts and cacao and, and all kinds of things and some row cropping, right? But it's being done, you know, our average smallholder farmer that we work with has 35 to 40 different crops on their land, right? When you go to their neighbors who have, you know, the neighbors that have sold out or have been forced, physically forced through violence and all sorts of other very nefarious ways off of their land, you find one crop, soy, for example, in in one Mm -hmm. areas which we work, and the carbon carrying capacity of that land is fractional, minimal compared to the bountiful per hectare yields of carbon and healthy soils and healthy vegetation that we see on our smallholder land. So the problem is that industry and corporations right now are valuing the short-term gains that you can yield off of soy plantations that, you know, may only last a few years and certainly need tremendous amounts of inputs of fossil fuel-based fertilizers and other types of pest controls and things like that to maintain that destroys the environment around it. It denudes the value and health of the soil that those soy crops are growing in. And what you end up with is desertification at some point, right? So the land is yeah. basically just tapped out. As opposed to regenerative, restorative agriculture that has it that is based, it's not some new practice and a set of new practices that we've, you know, just recently discovered. These are techniques that have been in place for hundreds, if not thousands of years through, you know, literally through human evolution that are basically much more in sync with and using and benefiting from the natural cycles of land and the earth in order to produce a better quality product. It just tastes better. It's why organic vegetables and fruits that we may all eat just have a better taste to them sometimes Uh, and basically you can literally taste the difference in the food that you consume and science backs that up to say it's healthier from the entire supply chain of the production of that type of food
0: yeah it's crazy i was having a conversation with the head of the world food bank on friday weirdly enough and he said exactly the same thing he he was big into hydroponics for a while and like vertical farming basically. Sure. And he and he would say it just didn't taste the same because there's no. the small, smallest changes in maybe it's the magnesium with the sodium in the soil. These tiny changes have huge impact on taste and health. And yep. creating that in a lab setting is we haven't no. got there yet. We may get well, there. We may not. Yeah.
1: And the same is true. Honestly, so I totally agree with that sentiment yeah. as somebody who has a backyard garden and, and grows own,
0: <laughs> you know, here, nice. uh, it just yeah. tastes better. My chickens yeah.
1: produce better eggs than the ones I buy from the store. That's just the way yeah. it is. Yeah. But, you know, what's interesting in the carbon world is you, you mentioned hydroponics, for example, and hydroponics yeah. may be a part of a future that are needed. I, you know, that I'm no expert on on that side of things. But in the carbon credit world specifically, st- we have seen the investment world and just run after and spend literally billions of dollars producing mechanical carbon capture, which is a type of literally taking, it's a big, almost literally a big vacuum (laughs) that
0: you put up into the sky.
1: You suck down a bunch of carbon dioxide and you try to turn it into oxygen and and carbon molecules, right? And it turns out what I just described is photosynthesis, right? Uh, We have the natural processes to do this at massive scale. And we have the economic abilities, and that's part of what Reseed is, is doing, is showing that there's an econ- you can pro- provide the economic incentives to make sure that photosynthesis is valued. And we don't have to spend as... Many others have. I won't name names right now, but basically, <laughs> you know, spending billions of dollars <laughs> yeah. to create, you know, a plant in Iceland, for example, that I believe at the last last data that I saw from it was maybe producing and sequestering about four thousand tons of carbon per year, and that's a nice number. But when you think when we look at it, really, like one of our farmers or two of our farmers, make, you know, brought together, certainly a community of farmers produces far more than that in a year pulling down net new carbon and protecting it in the ground and feeding the planet and reversing poverty change and poverty cycles and all of the other, you know, sort of co-benefits that we get out of creating very healthy, vibrant ecosystems, healthier water, healthier biodiversity. We can certify the lack of deforestation taking place in those areas. And there's all kinds of benefits, right? That, that come about from this activity. And we just believe that somebody needed to step forward and change the system and, and build on and and create an evolutionary leap in how we're measuring and looking at carbon and incentivizing behind it so that we could actually make some progress on getting towards our 2030 and 2050 goals that the the world has set. And we are nowhere near doing that yet as a, as yeah, a global no community. And we need solutions that scale exponentially, but that make sense, right? Carbon... Uh capture, mechanical carbon capture could theoretically make a lot of sense. And you could theoretically scale it, but we've been at it for 10 years and we barely have any results. Photosynthesis has been here for the beginning of time, right? It's literally what helped cause us to be. And it's a, it's a perfect system that we just need to make sure we're creating the conditions for. And farmers do that. Industrial agriculture at scale, For the individual farmers that participate in it is not an economically lucrative operation. It is the corporations that aggregate all of that together that are the ones that basically, they just see the farms as trading pieces, right? You know, and so when Uh, this one tapped out, okay, we've got the other reserve over here and, you know, we we can produce our Wheaties or whatever it is, right? (laughs) That we need to put in the market. And basically what smallholder farmers are able to do, they have a more resilient ecosystem if financially and if the financial pathways to market are clear actually it is per hectare is you get a higher yield when you have a diverse number of crops per hectare that you are producing and the reason is a In natural ecosystems, there are co-benefits to having different crops near each other and growing. So cacao, for example, which is the base, that's the bean, you know, that goes into chocolate and and creates all the chocolate that we love to eat. It grows way more efficiently and much more, it's a higher yield that you get and a better quality of of output when it's grown in a shaded environment, right? So when you have it growing with other plants and vegetation around it, and that's just one example, and there are many. And so- Basically, when smaller farmers are able to do and the work that they need to do and they have the compensation that's needed and the financial incentives are aligned, they actually can produce a better, higher quality product that they can bring to market at a higher premium. And, you know, their per hectare productivity of both the crops that they're trying to produce plus the carbon that they are able to sequester and store, it actually makes it a much more viable. And and this is where, you know, receipts at the early days were a year in over just over a year into our work. But we are showing that our farmers are able to have a higher economic yield per hectare than their industrial farming neighbors. Basically, if you optimize your supply chain, you know, and once again, most of the companies that we're talking about it's a really interesting paradigm. We don't really think of the world's largest corporations, the food corporations, for example, as caring mm. about smallholder farmers or about this type of agriculture, but that's actually changing. And mm. you know, it. we could argue as to why, but what we're actually seeing is that some of the largest agricultural producers in the world, the food companies that are producing large volumes of food, are recognizing that the loss of smallholder farmers and the loss of arable land and, and the ability to produce uh, the product that they need to fill their product pipeline is under threat. And so you see actually in public company filings all over the place, when they list out the threats to the future of their business, almost all of them actually now cite climate change. Almost all of them, if you're in the chocolate business, the number one threat to your business is the loss of smallholder farmers. And so we are seeing some of the largest corporations in the world now step up and start asking how can they reestablish those relationships with the smallholder farmers that are in their supply chains? Because once again, the industrialization of food production, we could have a long conversation about this, but (laughs) um, basically has led to a whole set of middle people that are in between the farmer who's growing cacao on a small hillside in you know, Ecuador or Colombia, and basically the beans that need to get all the way to the factories, you know, so that Nestle's can make better chocolate and more of it. Basically, there are many, many intermediaries, right? That that are sort of between Nestle and and those growers. Nestle doesn't have a direct relationship with those growers usually. And I don't mean to pick on Nestle, by the way. This is true for any, any big chocolate company that's out there. And so what we're doing is actually working with those large, and this is the other side of the market that we are paying a lot of attention to, which is the demand side. Yeah, How do we actually help those large corporations that source food from small farmers create a direct relationship, economic relationship with those farmers? And we do that by connecting the farmer and the carbon that they produce directly to the carbon balance sheets of those companies that are mandated in certain jurisdictions like the EU or voluntarily, yeah. like here in the United States, making promises to reduce their overall carbon footprint. And basically we can help them do that by buying carbon directly from the smallholder farmers in and, and other farmers in their supply chains. And so in that model, right, the corporations that are be, you know participating in this are actually doing something that is hugely impactful. Stabilizing, you know, and directly being able to compensate through Reseed as, you know, the connector for this. We are able to connect those companies directly to literally the 10 meter square space on a small farm, you know, in Brazil that their product came from and that the carbon also that, you know, can come from as well and be measured and verified. And so by doing that, we're helping to close that loop for these companies and creating the counter force, if you will, that addresses the needs of those farmers that addresses climate change needs that we all urgently, urgently have to address. And at the same time meets the needs and provides those corporations with incredibly deep connectivity that is real, that can not only show up on their carbon balance sheets, but also when they do their ESG reporting. Right or CSR or SDGs, all the different initials, right that yeah. we use. But the yeah. point is, is, that we're able to map all of that data that we're collecting directly into those systems of the customers, so that we're providing way more than just carbon, way more than just the you know co-benefits that I've mentioned. Um, but yeah. we're able to actually track those, so that the company knows that the payments that they made led to you know a doubling or a tripling or whatever it might be of the household income of those farmers and had all of these other carbon and biodiversity and
0: water quality and educational attainment and all the rest impacts as a result. So I think that's a really interesting thing for the audience to really like double down on is you're enabling these big corporations to not only support socially these smaller farmers, but they're also mandated or under pressure to buy carbon credits. So you're enabling them to buy the carbon credits from the very farmers they're getting their products from that will enable the farmers to next season become sequester even more carbon and earn even more carbon credits and have even Correct. more production. So you're creating this like virtuous cycle and input into the whole ecosystem that's going to, whereas in the previous phase of industrialization, that wasn't possible. Uh, just from a scalability perspective with this new, it's, it's on the blockchain, right? It's blockchain-based technology. Well, so yeah, it's basically the, we use yeah. blockchain for the auditability side of what we do.
1: We track yeah. all of the data transactions every time data moves in our system. We are logging it basically to a distributed ledger that allows us to provide auditability for our customers and that's something that once again, literally from the farm field and the satellite data and the data that the farmers entered all the way through all the calculations that we make all the way through to their balance sheets, they're able to audit the data and make sure that what we said we did is, it was true and offers a level of transparency that legacy carbon markets have lacked and yeah. uh, have led to some of the very serious pro- significant problems that have been recently brought to light about miscounting and you know bad models and all kinds of other issues that the current carbon markets and legacy carbon markets have, have had.
0: Really, really interesting. So would you be able to do what you're doing today without the blockchain, or would it just be really hard? Yeah, it would be harder, basically. We, you know, yeah.
1: one of the things blockchain very specifically, and to be clear, we're not talking about crypto cryptocurrency or any of that type of, you know, coin or any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We literally use the technology. It's just a layer in our stack that is an immutable distributed ledger. It means that when something is written to it, um, it self-verifies in a way. And I'm not the expert on that full <laughs> yeah. way blockchain uh, works, but basically, the yeah. trusted and clear record that cannot be changed it's immutable and so that means that our customers when they're doing their auditing of our data are able to trust the fact that what we said happened actually happened and they can see the data walking you know literally the chain part of this is if you will just for folks that are unfamiliar with it is the idea that an event happened here that's a ledger it's almost like you wrote it down in an old-fashioned bank ledger right that's where the term comes from and We can say it absolutely irrefutably happened and you can verify that. And then this next thing happened and the next thing and the next thing, all the way through the supply chain of, of the carbon basically that gets to the carbon credit and you're able to verify each stage and see that each one is linked to each other so that you know, and you know, it would be, it is. Cryptographically impossible at this point to in any way fake any of that information along the way. And so that type of transparency, that type of visibility is something that blockchain specifically helps enable at scale. And we didn't have to create a system or a type of ledger or whatever that would do that because the technology, you know, is readily available out in the world, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, which I love, because I mean, I think we've been through the blockchain bubble now of the whole technology and crypto and all this kind of stuff and and it was always a technology play and in my head so it's, it's really cool to see an example of the technology being in place to do what the tech was originally in my opinion made to do which was facilitate mass organization um effectively so i think this would yeah. just this would just be so hard without blockchain yeah
1: it builds it builds a system that from a business logic perspective is transparent and because it's transparent can be trusted and therefore that is what the cool part of all this is you know we don't we're not at the bleeding edge of much of the self-organization that, you know, is, is the experiments that are happening with DAOs and other things like that. We are not at the bleeding edges as reseed, you know, with cryptocurrency and moving around money in that way and, and creating new types of assets based on, you know, we're not doing any of that. Honestly, yeah, yeah. what we're doing is using the best of this technology that is very proven, that is very, is rock solid and our corporate customers who are buying our, our carbon trust. And that's the most important part for us.
0: Yeah. And in my opinion, that's just what it was. That was what it was made to do, you know, which, which I I love that. So let's move on to the next subject, which is carbon credits. I I mean, I'm hoping most of my listeners are relatively familiar with what they, what they are, but it is, there's not one type of carbon credit, right? There's many different types. There's voluntary, there's involuntary, there's mandated, there's not mandated. There's ones you buy to retire and then some of you don't retire and sell on and yep. Can you you break it? I mean, I don't don't think even I understand it fully. Can you break it down? Yeah. (laughs) Let's
1: back up to a high level to the
0: science of this first, right? And then we'll get into
1: the mechanisms. The science clearly and irrefutably states that we know that human activity has caused, which let's be very clear, digging up and burning fossil fuels for hundreds of years has led to a massive amount of car- excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that is stuck there, basically. At the same time that we were digging up and burning all of that fossil fuel, we were destroying many of the forests and ocean oceanographic sort of ocean-based systems that existed on the planet for helping to balance out carbon in the world, right? So in the past, you know, normally carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere, any Any animal on the planet that breathes caused carbon dioxide to go into the atmosphere. We just exponentially increased the amount that was going out into the atmosphere and took away the Earth's systems that could help balance that out. And so basically, we have two paths forward that we have to do at the same time, right? It is not one or the other. And this is where a bunch of people get a little bit tripped up. We need to make sure that we are lowering the number of emissions that are going out into the atmosphere, that means there really is almost no debate about this. We have to, at a global scale, and in a short period of time, eliminate the digging up and burning of fossil fuels, right? We just, we have to stop it, right? We can't keep putting those emissions out into the atmosphere. So that means we need emissions reduction to take place. If we right now did that, and stopped all emissions going out into the atmosphere, climate change and the effects of it would still happen, right? It, it, it would slow down the overall curve, but it wouldn't stop the disastrous sort of trend that we're on right now because we have legacy carbon dioxide carbon in the atmosphere that has to be pulled down and removed from the atmosphere and stably stored in the ground. And so basically the we as Reseed work on generating carbon credits to incentivize the removal and storage of carbon, that legacy carbon that's in the atmosphere. Corporations and we as individuals can reduce the amount of emissions that we put out and basically there are economic incentives that exist for, for corporations, especially to do that in the carbon credit market. And so basically it's very complicated, but. The EU is probably the clearest example of how it works, and and I think how it should work, which is the EU has come together to say we mandate that you know that your maximum if you're in this in, whatever industry industry X that your maximum threshold of emissions this year and every year has to you know start going down right, and it's any. If you emit beyond that level, we are going to tax you. You have to pay a fee, basically, to do that per ton of carbon that you're putting out in the atmosphere. And right now, I haven't looked at the spot prices just recently, but we're talking, you know, you know, upwards of sixty to eighty euros per ton
0: of carbon. Gone over hundred now. Oh, okay, you thank you. So
1: that yeah. <laughs> I means that for every ton of carbon that you put out in the atmosphere above whatever threshold you're allowed, you get taxed for it, right? And you have to pay the EU a fine. That highly incentivizes corporations, makes it way too expensive to pollute, and it causes them in the EU to really ratchet down your emissions as much as you possibly can. There is a point at which, though, you can't get to net zero if you live in Western society. Like, it's just, it's impossible. And so basically, just by reducing emissions. So by you get it down to the level that you can afford to get it down to, you know, below some threshold, and then you can buy carbon credits on the market to get, pull down the rest basically. And those carbon credits have to represent somewhere in the world, carbon either being pulled down or stored in, in the, you know, in the planet. And those are generated through all kinds of different means. There's many different types of carbon credits that are out there. And we could probably do an entire show, you know, just talking about the the benefit of each one. But many of those credits don't actually really represent a, a real reduction. And in my opinion, and many others out in the world, are not scientifically or sort of, you know, from a climate perspective, really valid. And so we believe, as I said earlier, that photosynthesis increasing the amount of photosynthesis that takes place and 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 making sure the planet is healthy enough for photosynthesis to take place on land. And then also in the oceans, by the way, which is a whole nother issue, <laughs> but basically oh, yeah. is the answer to making sure that we can pull down that legacy carbon and provide high quality, carb- scientifically valid carbon credits that can be used in that marketplace overall. And this is where... Other issues is not just the quality of those carbon credits, but it's the pricing of those carbon credits that you need to make sure that those carbon credits are expensive enough that have enough price associated with them, that they actually provide the incentives that it is, it is more expensive. Like we, the companies that we work with absolutely know that they have to reduce their emissions so that they don't have to buy so many of our carbon credits because that's a very expensive activity to do. And that's the way the market should work. Um, What we've seen is a complete, you know, swaying. The early days of the carbon credit market have led to a lot of really bad behavior on behalf of Companies providing carbon credits and validating them, and then also companies coming in and taking advantage and basically just being able to buy a $2 carbon credit, $2 per ton carbon credit, for example. And, you know, they can do that all day long. And that is a lot less expensive than, you know, paying the $120 or whatever the number is, you know, for yeah, for a euro cost of a carbon credit on the market. That's problematic. And that's the part of the market that we are trying to make sure that we come we are transparent that we are clear about the processes and how we do what we do and we're very transparent and clear about the costs and how those costs are structured so that you know 50% of the gross revenue of a carbon purchase credit purchase from us goes directly to a farmer right that's just yeah. that that's just the way it is and so you know and and every bit of the of transactions that happen after that we're very transparent about our customers love that and our farmers love that because they can trust basically everybody has trust into the system when they can see that type of transparency and we think that that can help that's what makes our carbon credits different than most or all and the fact that they come from
0: smallholder farmers that is a completely unique thing in the marketplace yeah because then you get a nice social benefit as well right Instead of just saying yeah, again, you're, you're also helping out, which is I think is awesome. Why can I, as an individual, buy carbon credits and then sell and effectively selling them? So I'm, I'm hoping that someone then buys them at a higher price, right? Why yeah. does that exist and, and and is it linked to this concept of retiring carbon credits? How is that mechanism working today? So basically, a carbon credit, if you take the word carbon and all the science of it out, right, that there's this thing
1: that you're causing a credit to exist, a plus, if you will, in the world, and somewhere there's a balance sheet, right? This all comes from balance sheet and accounting, you know, uh, of corporations. Corporations in the EU, for example, are mandated. They have to have a carbon balance sheet, right? They have to show, just like a financial balance sheet, they have to have a carbon one. And so basically, those credits that are sitting over here, right on the producing side of, of things do not become an active credit until they are applied to a balance sheet. So the act of doing that is you retire it from being a live credit out in the world. And it then becomes permanently attached to that balance sheet of that corporation and it's retired. So that means it can no longer be sold here. A re- You want a record of the fact that it did exist out here, so you can have traceability, but basically the ownership transfers to the corporation and onto their balance sheet. And once that happens, that, and is applied as a carbon credit to that balance sheet, it no longer exists, right? It's, it's a, it's a concept that goes away. It's an accounting mechanism that goes away. If you hold on to that credit over on the live side, it becomes a commodity that you can trade and exchange, and you know buy low, sell high, and do all the things that people do with commodities. And the question is, you know, what is the validity of that? Like, you know, grain that goes that you know wheat when it becomes a commodity and on a commodities exchange. If you hold on to the wheat for too long, it can go bad, right? It might rot, and so it has no value after a certain level of time. The same concepts can appear, you know, not exactly rotting, if you will, but the same philosophical concepts can happen with carbon credits on the market. And so we are focused on working directly with those that wish to retire their carbon immediately. As soon as they buy it from us, they retire it. They don't have to, but we are not really set up as a trading desk of, you know uh you know day traders of carbon kind of thing that others have tried to do and and we don't see a business model yet that makes sense there we think that treating it like a live commodity is something that is yeah a useful way to look at it
0: yeah i love that i love that and and i think again with yours you you know these big companies are genuinely as as much as i throw shade at bigger companies they are really trying they're, and 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 there's some incredible work going on. So even some of the the natural work that Apple doing, who typically get a pretty bad rep on end anything socially, I think unfairly, yep. they're investing huge huge capital in this. And something interesting that companies are doing now actually is they see how heavy these carbon bills are going to get in the future. Because yes. carbon is a depreciating asset or depreciating concept, right? So, uh-huh. the, so the, the EU and, and these companies are trying to transition companies away. That means, say, just to use simple math, they get 100 this year. Next year, they're going to get 90, and then these 80, step. and then maybe 60. Yep. So, the the the, the they're going to have to buy so many more every year as it's- they're trying to grow their business. So, yep. t- so in theory, their carbon gets more. So, what a lot of companies are doing now is actually investing in the creation of carbon credits, so they could just buy their own supply, which is totally small. and and basically we we help
1: facilitate that for companies that source product from farmers, which you know is the food industry, obviously, but it's also the apparel industry, personal yeah. care product, and many other yeah. areas. There are a lot of material sciences now that are coming from you know grown product as well. And so we have the ability to help those companies do that in a way that's way more economically viable. And it turns out, if you look at all the co-benefits that come with it, there's all the social co-benefits and socioeconomics for the farmers, but the stability of farmers alone, that means supply chain security for those companies. And so actually, like most things, When you look at things holistically and you look at it from a sustainable sort of lens and trying to even a regenerative lens, uh, in the medium to long term, it's a way more profitable model than the quick hit, you know, sort of pillage mentality that honestly a lot of industry has been running on for too long.
0: Yeah, it's so funny. We're almost kind of going back to our roots, like journeying back to human in a sense, right? We're going through this like mass industrialization and then realize it hasn't worked out for us and now we're journeying back. <laughs> yeah. No, and yeah. Benefit, you know, there have been benefits, but we now have the
1: ability at scale. And that is the key differentiator here to take these systems that have worked for us in the past, are traditional, are you know based on thousands of years of knowledge you know, in terms of how to manage ecosystems and 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 live harmoniously with them, we can actually take those learnings now at scale and produce financial capital and financial results that don't mean that we had we're back, you know, we're sliding backwards. In fact, it's a it's a next evolution
0: for humanity. Yes, yeah, interesting. How did you get into this? What what was the moment that where you just decided that you wanted to work in one climate and two this specific issue of helping smallhold farmers sell carbon credits. I have two co-founders of Reseed, Vasco and Zach, and I have to give them
1: credit really for Vasco brings the science and the community-based and and sort of the you know how to activate thousands yeah. or millions of of small landholders to to action. He did that very successfully for decades in Brazil. And my other partner, Zach, worked in the food industry and specifically with the transformation at the at the very edges of regenerative agriculture, organic standards, and and all the rest, you know, in, in Central and South America and, and, and the United States and Europe, and worked with a lot of the largest food brands that are out there that we know well today. And so basically it was coming together with the two of them, realizing that they each had a piece, like the supply side of the carbon side and, yeah. uh, you know, the demand side, and that we could put those things together you know, in a way that using business and really good business logic as a mechanism and some technology thrown in, which is part of my background. And it was after speaking with both of them in late 2021 that I realized, and we all three of us realized that this was a path forward, that this could work, that the technology was there. the, The demand was there. Humanity is at a global scale understanding that we are at a precipice right now we still have time and we really believe there's still time to fix things we can make this work but boy do we need to do it fast and we need to do it at scale and who better to partner with and who better to do it with than enlisting billions of smaller farmers around the planet and soon backyard gardeners and individuals like you and me to like all be a part of this movement of creating healthier soil healthier plant life that sustains us and you know and is part of a solution for saving the planet and humanity which you know is it is th- this task that we're up against is no less than that we have uh, to do this so that my kids and my grandkids hopefully at maybe uh, will yeah you know, still young they're going to be they're they're you know like late teens and early 20s so they to yeah. be wondering why I'm pushing them in that direction but the point is <laughs> <laughs> that basically <laughs> You know, in order for our next generations for humanity to move on, we have to do something right now. We are yeah. literally at that point where it's up to us to take action and do something. And how could we not do this? And and the three of us that got together and the team that we built around us of some of the leading experts in economics and farming and carbon and science and all the rest, we are all on this mission and we invite you know everyone to join us. We This is not a there's not one company that's going to do this, or one group that's going to do this. This needs to be a humanity-wide effort, and we all need to pitch in to make this happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, and it's just an optimi- optimistic future, right? We want biodiversity; it's cool. <laughs> not only is it great for the planet, but I love going away and seeing all these random stuff. Totally,
1: I'm a nature photographer,
0: and trust me, like, I oh yeah, I need.
1: Good subjects out of the world, right? You know, the, yeah, the, yeah. You need
0: to what? Yeah, imaginations and minds. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of that too. <laughs> Did you see the, the? I don't know if it was just a UK thing, but it was a UK award for nature photography. I sent it to you after the podcast. unreal oh, yeah, yeah, and is it ah, uh, it's it, it stuff like that. The the one that won it this year was pi- these pictures of some of these zeb- zebras zebras. Mm-hmm. Oh my! Yep. God, my English friends are going to hate me right it's okay. now. <laughs> yeah i can't believe i just said that i'm moving to <laughs> la at the end of the week and i was just getting into the swing of things on this like beautiful landscape but you only re- after looking at it for a few minutes you realize that actually the the picture's taken from the top and what you thought were the zebras were actually the the their shadows and it's oh, just it's yes yeah, it's just the I- images like that. I mean, I, I, again, I love this stuff that kind of makes you want to, it, it can feel day-to-day climate change can feel like this very abstract concept. Exactly. And it's something I'm battling with in my own head is I, 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 you, we need to remind people what's going on and this is possibly the most, the best opportunity to work on something truly meaningful without well, yeah. spreading doom and gloom because I don't, yes. I really don't believe doom and gloom is motivational for anyone it's right. short-term motivation at absolute best. Yes. So it's like, how do you balance those two angles of we need everyone in this mission and, and I don't wanna just spread doom and gloom. So how, how do you go about that? Look, I think being able to offer inspiration, you yeah. know, in term, as you're
1: mentioning, those types of photography, you know, that the, the artists of the world are telling the story of the planet right now, right? We're seeing amazing documentaries. We're seeing beautiful expressions of artwork. You know, of people who are celebrating and and you know humanity has celebrated the planet and the life on it and our interconnectivity for millennia, right? this is this has been going on for a long time. But making sure that those voices and that artwork and you know are are being heard and seen is inspirational, right? To know that there are zebras on the planet and there's still run races that, you know, look like dinosaurs that, like, you know, are are amazing creatures that we can see in my backyard right here, you know, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, right? There's birds and there's all sorts of animals that exist and, and you know, nature is around us no matter where we are. And that to me is inspirational. And that's why, you know, I, I try to capture it and, and communicate it through photography and talking to people about it. But we also need the positive solutions. And this is the thing that I think, I believe that the current systems that we have in place right now markets specifically and capitalism specifically, which, you know, I know I give a bad rap to sometimes, just to be clear, I'm not always <laughs> a big fan of how it's implemented. but the yeah. fact of the matter is, is that market-driven solutions can provide us a scalable path forward where we can incentivize, financially incentivize everybody along the way to be a participant in taking part in what needs to be humanity's greatest effort to date to save this planet. And yes, there is an edge to that of urgency and of negativity, right? You could get lost in the doom and gloom of it. But the fact of the matter is, is that the act of digging up soil in your backyard and planting, you know, digging up some of your old grass, you know, that you're about to move to LA, dig up some of that grass and plant a native garden instead, right? That actually has a tangible, measurable difference that you specifically are making in your backyard. And, you know, I I don't think I'm giving away too much here by saying we're working right now (laughs) on implementing the tools necessary for, for people to be able to measure that change in their own backyards, as well as the small farmers, you know, on their farms and tie those efforts together so that we can enlist the vast majority of the planet and humanity in this effort. Because up until this point, we've all been blocked from really making effective change, how do we change what a huge corporation does halfway around the planet? Yeah. This is the way for us to participate in that process in a meaningful way. And we think that's inspirational, that we gain inspiration from others that have done it before us,
0: and we're building on that going forward. Fascinating. So I think what you're alluding to there is that you're going to progress this technology from just smallholder farmers to incentivizing people in their own backyards, which is really cool. So you're going to be effectively facilitating people to create a side income, a side hustle of capturing carbon in their own... So the the focus is there's a lot of
1: work to do before people are going to be able to make money from this, just to be yeah. clear in your own backyard, because guess what? Yeah. If you're moving to LA, you know the average household in the United States, for example produces anywhere, depending on your estimates that you believe between thirty and fifty tons of carbon emissions into the atmosphere yeah. every year. And yeah. your backyard right now might, if you, you know, have some greenery going on in it and some exposed soils, might be able to capture about two tons of carbon on average. Just that yeah. these are very, very broad numbers. Broad numbers. Um, yeah. So basically in order for you to reduce your household emissions down and then have the the net positive of your yard increase enough to get to the point where you are net carbon positive sorry net carbon negative which means that you would have excess carbon to be able to sell back into the grid if you will similar to the way solar works It's going to take people a long time to do that, but we can engage people in that dialogue and that awareness and make it so that there are financial incentives that are available to them. Discounts from, you know, companies, for example, that might want to incentivize that type of behavior in your backyard. There's all sorts of ways in which we're approaching this and we will this year be launching tools for people in their backyards to be able to measure the carbon to start.
0: Very cool. Very cool. On that topic, where, what are the next three years look like for you guys? What's what's the mission? Well, our mission is to, we're currently working, I think the exact
1: number is right, just around 8,700 farmers in Brazil, smallholder farmers that are part of our our network. We want to, the goal over the next year is to blow that out across multiple continents and to hundreds of thousands of farmers and within three years get to millions of farmers that are a part of this network of, of protecting and and drawing down carbon. And we also want to deeply engage with consumers at the point at which, you know, in their households and outside in their, in their backyard gardens, to be a part, to raise that awareness and to add billions more people to the global effort of, of those who have small pieces of land, small areas that they're working within. But the many, as we've seen, Many, many, many small efforts coming together and working together creates a movement, and that's what we need
0: to see on the planet. And that's where we're headed as a company. Amazing. For for maybe younger people, younger entrepreneurs, you know, a big part of what I want this podcast to be is is helping people get into the space. What, from your perspective, could people my age, around my age, so like early twenties? What are, what are some avenues they could look into to have a one a really successful career in this in this in this field, but also uh-huh. have a really high impact at the same time?
1: So I think it really needs to start with internal work, right, yeah. within the person, right? Understanding what is it that you're passionate about, what really motivates you, and what are your skill sets? What are the things that you can bring to make the world a better place? And basically, I know this doesn't this, it's not easy. Right. Doing what we all do is not easy. And so uh, there's no simple, quick answer to this question, but really understanding that following your purpose and following your passion and applying whatever it is that you do and uniquely in the world or or you know that you can bring together with others to bring to the world. You know, not everyone is an entrepreneur, not everyone is an engineer, not everyone is a surgeon, right? Or, you know, whatever it is. And so We all have to find our place and the things that we're good at and make sure that it feels right when we enter into, into the business world of some sort, you know, getting a job or choosing where to live or, you know, the types of activities that we're partaking in. Does it feel right? Is it aligned with your own internal values and mission and purpose? And if it is, and you can answer yes to those questions, then you know you're on the right path, basically. And that's something that I teach students and, and at university level and, and below, and I constantly try to reinforce this message that, you know, this idea of punching a clock between nine and five, and then, you know, just spending the rest of the evening partying or whatever sounds fun in the beginning. I get it. Or, you know, maybe just the partying part is what sounds fun or sure. you you can actually integrate your passions together so that, you know, the work that you do during the day um, and the life that you live the rest of the time are much more in balance and synchronized with each other, which means you're following your purpose, you're, fo- you're following your passions. It actually ends up being more fulfilling from a personal perspective and a mental health perspective. It can also be much more lucrative because if you really are passionate and believe in what you're doing, then you'll be better at it, right? And you'll yeah, see for sure, for sure. more. And so, you know, yeah. those are really obvious concepts, but. I think far too often we think we have to like go into very rigid, you know, I need to be a lawyer and I don't like law, but I'm just going to do that during the day and at night I'll, you know, I'll volunteer and do something else. No, I mean, you know, I, I know many lawyers actually who are working at the forefront of social equity and environmental equity and thinking through, you know, it's why we have B Corps in the world. I mean, you know, like you can apply these, these passions and beliefs and structures in almost any field. And. for sure. Finding your you shouldn't need with...
0: balance from your work, right? That's, no, I, I, I know that's uh, some. I'm in a place of privilege to be able to say that, and we're in the Western world, and yes. with we've got technology, which means that we're a lot more free. But in 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 the areas that we live, I I really I live with two lawyers. They both hate it. And like, why are you doing this, then, lads? <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah, right? I was actually having, I was actually having this conversation last night. I think a big law firm somewhere or some law association paid for suits to be made. Because it glorifies it, and that, and then by the time they've actually researched it and, and done, spent two hundred thousand pounds doing the training and six years, and then they yep. actually finally get their first job and realize they hate it, they're too far down the rabbit hole of of law. <laughs> and, and I've met, luckily,
1: yeah. you know, some of the early pioneers. Just go down the rabbit hole of law for a second. I mean, just as one example. I mean, you know, being a yeah. lawyer for many is not you know a happy, fulfilling life for them. Some you know for some people, and yeah. so. What I've seen, though, is is there's an entire group now of lawyers that focus on social responsible business practices. And, you know, when you look at the laws that exist around ESG and and reporting and corporate and all the rest, these are all things that like, it it wasn't, uh, trust me, it wasn't a bunch of hippies in in, in the 60s that that came up with these concepts. It was literally (laughs) people who believed in and worked in a specific either economics or policy or law. These are all areas that could be really heavy at times yeah. and kind of, you know, draining on on some people, but they can also be invigorating and exciting if you apply your passions to them. And sure, you may not be making as much money right away because you're not on that corporate track of, you know, attorneydom that, you know, a lot of folks have, but I've seen a bunch of very, very successful attorneys, you know, that are following their passions. And that's just one example. I'm not saying everyone should become a lawyer. Trust me. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> But the point is, do what you enjoy. Yeah, just just do what you enjoy, because yeah. then you just be you end up being so much better at it. Because totally, yeah. I mean, I mean, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm preaching here because I've made that transition myself. Yes, I was doing stuff I didn't enjoy. I mean, literally at the start of the business we've just launched, we 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 had one business model, and me yep. and my co-founder sat down literally this November and we're saying, does this does this shit excite us? It's important, right. but does it excite us? Yeah. The, the answer was, yes, it's important. No, it doesn't excite us. So we moved to something that does excite us. And honestly, like we we work seven days a week, not because yep. we're trying to be Gary Vee and stuff. It's just because yep. we genuinely enjoy, enjoy this shit. So it's really important. And, and look, yeah. you
1: mentioned the privilege side of this, which is absolutely yeah. true. But my advice always is, it doesn't matter where in the socioeconomic stack you are. If you can find joy... And you can find, you know, passion in what you do. You will earn more money in the long run because you will be better at whatever it is that you do. And it, you know, it may mean you have to slog it out for a few years in something that isn't as exciting, but use that opportunity to figure out where your passions do lie and how you can make that pivot or change. Because, you know, quite honestly, the the idea of being in one career and one path and one job for your whole
0: life, that that went away generations ago.
1: That doesn't exist.
0: Yeah. Anyway and you love good energy and people like people with good energy because yes. if you're doing something you enjoy then that's nice so what are you most optimistic about right now i am
1: really excited about how emerging technologies are allowing for connective increased connectivity among people's passions right it's it, it it's it's a bit of a dissonance because there are bad examples of more connectivity causing more social problems and mental health issues and all the rest. But there's a, a, a countervailing effort to that that allows for technology to enhance and reflect humanity in a way that causes us to come together and organize more effectively and grow and solve some of you know the significant problems that we have in our world at scale. And so I'm excited by you know the fact that we're at a moment in time where literally billions of people can come together and take action on issues across borders across language across you know every possible you know difference if you will that that exists among among all the people but the common goals of creating a better future creating a better future for children for the next generations for all of the life that's around us and to be connected to it to me that that's inspiring and I'm really looking forward to seeing how we harness all these technologies t- and to make these kind of changes.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. I think that's a perfect way to wrap up because what you guys are doing is is, is so incredible, making these small changes to smallholder farmers, both, as I keep saying, from a social perspective, but also you're keeping these gen- these generational farmers, generational land in business, literally in yes. business, by giving them another revenue stream, Correct. By rewarding them for the brilliant work they are doing, so yeah, huge, huge congratulations on what you've built so far, and I'm I'm really excited to see this grow. Where can where, how can people get involved? How can people find you? Yeah, I mean, if if people want to reach out, where where do they where do they so get? The,
1: the best way is through our website. We have an interesting domain name. It's Reseed R E S E E D dot Farm. So if you type that into a web browser and check us out, <laughs> you can learn about us, sign up, you know, to support and soon you'll be able to measure some carbon
0: in your own backyard if you want awesome i love it cool thank you so much guys for tuning in i really appreciate it i really think that was a a cool episode if you've made it this far into this podcast you may as well hit the subscribe button because we are getting more and more amazing founders like josh on the pod so yeah thank you for tuning in and i shall see you next week